On this show, we don't traffic in conspiracy theories, but what do you call a conspiracy theory that's true? Ah, uh, what do you call a conspiracy? You call it a conspiracy. Right. It's just a conspiracy. And it seems like we have one in the recycling industry here in the U.S. It's been around for 50 years and it still isn't working. Is recycling broken? It's the one gateway action that we're all kumbayaing on. We find out is just a scam. Then what's going to make us do anything environmentally? I'm Chris Stemp, the brunette. I'm Donnie Stemp, the blonde. Now it's kind of gray. It's the week of September 12th, 2022. The atmospheric carbon level is 416.45 parts per million. Welcome to the week on Earth. So, Chris. Yeah. I'm sorry to have to do this. I have to out you on something. Oh boy. Here on the radio in front of Yeah, let's go with let's go let's go with radio boomer. <laughs> <laughs> on our international podcast. Yeah. I'm sorry I have to out you like this. Mm. But I was told by one of our wives, and I won't say which one, to protect her identity. <laughs> I know where this is going. I'm going to be honest. Really? Yeah. I was told you are not a good recycler. I'm horrible. As soon as we brought up really? this episode title, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to admit some things on this. Yeah. All right. Well, then I'll tell you it was both of our wives. How does your wife know? When we were at your house, I think she either looked in your recycling bin or saw you throwing something in the trash. <laughs> what kind of creeper is paying attention to my recycling bin? We are very serious about recycling in this household, apparently. Well, uh, first of all, I'll give you a moment to defend yourself. No defense. Honestly, there's two things. Number one, it is far too confusing. When I have to ask, is this recyclable on literally everything, that's a pain. That's number one. Number two, I have long heard that recycling is in, is almost useless. I've seen videos of us outsourcing it to China. So I imagine my plastic being put on a ship sent across the world. And I just go, I don't think this is worth it. All right. Fair enough. I mean, it is worth it, but you are not alone in your confusion and your frustration for recycling. If we make mistakes at the bin and ultimately contaminate the good recyclables with garbage, then waste management benefits because they own most of the landfills in the U.S. Is there a conspiracy afoot? We'll get into that big idea in just a moment. But first, it's time for the news of the week on Earth. I was waiting for you that time. Oh, I didn't, I didn't remember. Our top story this week involves some Jason Momoa news. The Game of Thrones and Aquaman star has chopped off his signature luscious locks, saying that, I, I, I'm sorry, this is our top story. Who, did you write this? Uh, uh, yeah, I wrote this. This is uh, an important story. Have you heard of it? Well, <laughs> this what? is actually sad to admit. I've heard of it uh, because my wife told me and like, it's kind of a weird thing when your wife starts telling you about this big burly man's hair. 
<laughs> See, you did hear of it. That's that's amazing. Uh, maybe it's just my, you know, m- fragile masculinity. But listen, so he shared that he has shaved his head to raise awareness about the negative side effects of single-use plastic. In fact, here's Momoa on Instagram. Shaving off the hair. Doing it for, uh... Oh, 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 man. I've never even felt the wind right there. Do it for, uh... Single-use plastics. I'm tired of these plastic bottles. We gotta stop. Plastic forks, all that shit just goes into our land, goes into our ocean. I'm here and how about you right now. I'm just seeing some things in our ocean. It's just so sad. So please, anything you can do to eliminate single-use plastics in your life, help me. Help me. In the dramatic video, Momoa can be seen holding two severed braids of his beautiful, beautiful hair. It just is. From Fox News, the Hawaii native has encouraged fans to work together and keep the oceans clean to protect the lives of all sea creatures who could potentially be harmed by the plastic which ends up in the ocean. Compelling stuff. You see why I made it the top story? Okay, so now I get it. I actually didn't know the reasoning behind it. FYI. So Donnie, last time we recorded, you were sweltering and you were an angry ball of red fire over the heat wave. What's going on now? Hmm. Uh, I've calmed down. The heat wave is broken. It's it's amazing. But it was um, it was rough. It was, you know, it's potentially they're saying the longest heat wave ever recorded out here. And, you know, day after day, as it goes on, it just gets harder and harder to deal with. Um, concrete heats up and temperatures never really cool at night. And so you don't ever have a break from it. It was not fun. And then what happened, what, you know, what broke the heat wave is the first tropical storm to hit California in 25 years. See, wait, so it's not all that bad. We get heat due to climate change, but then we also get the tropical storm that fixes that heat because of climate change. Isn't that what, you know, we're Uh, saying here? Yeah. uh, I wouldn't characterize it that way because it, it was random, right? I mean, Yeah, climate change may have also contributed to this storm, and thank goodness it did hit at this point. Um, We got a decent amount of rain, not a ton, but there was a lot of flash flood warnings. You know, too much rain too quickly, especially in an area that has dried out so much, Mm. just doesn't even absorb in the ground. It just hits the ground and, and races along. So it worked out well, and it was it felt amazing to to get some rain. I went outside. I saw neighbors outside just kind of, you know, feeling immense relief after a week of hell. That's so strange what's happening in California. I, I don't know about you guys. It is. I know. Well, everything starts here. You know, we've said that. Sure. We are definitely the... the Canaries. Monkeys in the coal mine. It's a canary. Oh, right. <laughs> and uh, you're in a heck of a coal mine. So also this week, a major study found that the world is on the brink of five climate tipping points due to the 1.1 degrees of warming already caused by man-made climate change. The Guardian reports that these tipping points include the collapse of Greenland's ice cap, raising sea levels, the collapse of a vital current in the Atlantic Ocean, the destabilization of the Amazon, and the abrupt melting of carbon-rich permafrost. So at the 1.5 degrees Celsius of heating we are expected to experience, 
four of the five tipping points move from being possible to likely. Dr. David Armstrong McKay, a lead author of the study, also said, quote, it's really worrying. The study really underpins why the Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius is so important and must be fought for. Every fraction of a degree that we stop beyond 1.5 degrees reduces the likelihood of hitting more tipping points. Finally tonight, in a couple of Inflation Reduction Act stories, a new report from the Solar Energy Industries Association finds that solar installations will triple by 2027 thanks to the climate bill, with the industry growing 40% more than prior forecasts. Also, shout out to your state, Christopher. The IRA will substantially boost green jobs in rural Virginia. Nice. Yeah. The Guardian is reporting that some of the $369 billion in the bill will go to help training, innovation, and manufacturing in Virginia and West Virginia, uh, places where coal production has declined by 70%. Matt McFadden is a business director at Secure Futures, a company in Wise, Virginia, that installs distributed solar systems across that region. He says that, quote, the IRA is going to help push this further. It's so exciting. Until two years ago, solar was a dirty word around here. Not anymore. I feel optimistic about the region for the first time in a long time. What's the idea? Hey, what's the big idea anyway? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? All right, let's get into the big idea. Why can't we fix the recycling system? According to the EPA in 2020, 32% of recyclable material was successfully recycled. That's a, a pretty low bar. I don't know, you you s- said you were impressed by that amount. I am. I, again, I'm basing it off my own experience. I just assume most people are lazy. Uh, And that's not a knock. I I think at times I am too, or busy. But we've been doing this for 50 years. Ah, We should be better. This was one of the first hallmarks of the environmental movement. It's been around since before we were alive. Do you remember as kids, like recycling was one of those things. I, I got into it. I can still remember a book that I read. It was about fourth grade. It was on Earth Day talking about things you can do and reduce, reuse, recycle is one of them. Water management was one. Wait, are we thinking of the same book? (laughs) Dude, yes. Is it 50 things you can do to save the earth? That's it. I swear to you, that's the book. Why is that stuck in our head? I don't know. I think it was because it was easy and it was actionable. The other one I remember was to save water. You put a, a brick or a bottle in, in the your toilet. toilet tank. Yep. Yeah, it made a big impression. I, I also remember you could get the nickel for recycling the can. Wow. We would get on our bicycles, we would get trash bags, and we would go take cans from people's recycling bins, maybe, it's kind of vague, and we would take it and get money for it. So the point is, that was the 90s. We are full-on grown-ups now, and it's depressing that recycling still doesn't work well. Is recycling broken? Yes, it is broken, and your reasons for feeling sad or disappointed in recycling is legitimate. 
it is broken. And to kind of cut to the punchline, by design. That's Mitch Hedlund, the executive director of Recycle Across America. The industry of recycling is actually dominated and essentially owned by the landfill industry. So there's a conflict of interest right there. And so that's where this conspiracy, or at least conflict of interest, starts to take shape. Mitch, lay it out for me. I'll give you an example. We were part of an investigative report in Chicago where waste management was the recycling, contracted recycling hauler. Well, it was found that waste management was tagging all of the recycling bins as contaminated without even looking in them and refusing to pick up those bins. So what would happen then is Chicago's trash trucks would have to come in and not only pick up the garbage and bring that to a landfill, but they'd also have to come around again and pick up all the rejected recycling and bring it to a landfill. And every time you bring something into a landfill, you have to pay a tipping fee. So you find that waste management is making money on recycling hauling fees, but in the end, it's never even going into a recycling facility. It's instead being brought into their landfill and they're making fees on the tipping fees. These scenarios are happening all over the U.S. And in this case, landfills are highly profitable and recycling is highly confusing and therefore not as profitable. But it's intentionally designed to be confusing so that the landfill businesses can gain more revenue. Pretty twisted, um, and it gets worse. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to jump right to the solutions here, but you have thrown me for a loop because I was thinking the problem was people not throwing the right things in the right bins or not cleaning out that peanut butter from the jar. But this is a whole different level. You said it gets worse. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Lay it on me. So the landfill industry slash recycling industry has no problem whatsoever with the packaging industry and the virgin plastics industry marking every form of plastic with a chasing arrow, even though it's not recyclable. So the landfill industry slash recycling industry benefits from that because if people are throwing plastics in the bin that truly aren't recyclable, then that recycling company can say, oh, it's all contaminated, it's gotta go to the landfill. And you might say, well, why would the plastics industry want to confuse people? Well, most plastics are not actually recyclable. Um, the plastics industry loves promoting recycling, even though they actually don't want it to work. They promote recycling because that gives you and me and all of us who are getting more and more plastic coming into our homes every day, less guilt. And the virgin plastics industry loves that because it won't get recycled. And therefore, the demand for virgin plastic packaging will continue to increase. And the fossil fuel industry loves that because the number one category for increases in fossil fuel production is plastic. Those are all the dark reasons why 
we can't rise above and fix this recycling issue. This is why it's always stumbling for, for 50 years. Well, I feel like a puppet. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like their evil plan, which let's just call out how I think we're seeing a theme already. Capitalism and businesses truly destroy everything for the singular purpose of profit. But leaving that aside, it has worked on me. Yeah, it's it's maddening. I mean, not to hate on the idea of business, but yes, their motive is just a profit motive. There's all there's money to be made in consuming. There's no money to be made in conserving. You didn't just make that up. I did just make that up, actually. What has what have you done with my brother who can't string five sentences together? I've been thinking about these issues for a little <laughs> while now. That's true. You just got to find what you're interested in. And I get you. I get you. However, even though there's no money to be made in conserving, there is money to be made in commodities. And clean recyclables is a commodity. So let's get back to Mitch Hedlund of Recycle Across America to get to a solution to all this. But to get there, first she takes us across the sea on a slow boat to China. Historically, for many years, we were selling our recyclables to China. And what they were finding was that the recyclables were filled with all sorts of garbage, dirty diapers, bowling balls, just things that clearly tons of plastic that's not recyclable. And so they were left with a bad bill of goods. You know, here they paid for something and what they get when they go all the way back home is that it's it's garbage. So they warned over the course of at least a decade before um, that if the U.S. didn't start cleaning up the recyclables, that they were going to start restricting how much they would buy. Now, keep in mind, if the landfill companies and the virgin plastics industry and the fossil fuel industry are aware of this issue with China, and they're benefiting from recycling not working in the U.S., they will benefit more if China starts banning U.S. recyclables. So they, these industries that are so influencing recycling in the U.S., they have no motivation to make it easier for you and I and 300 million people to start recycling right. So they didn't fix the problem. And in 2018, China made the global announcement that they were no longer going to purchase U.S. recycling anymore because it was so contaminated. And they did say that if the U.S. could get the contamination levels under 5%, that they would then start purchasing it again. And when the public can recycle properly, the economics of recycling and the demand for those commodities start to right themselves. Finally, there's the hint of a solution. Is there something we can do to fix this recycling mess? There's a way to fix all of this unbelievably simply, and that's a standardized labeling system for recycling bins. So wherever you go, the label on a recycling bin, even if the rules are a little different, the way that the information is presented to us is crystal clear for what should be going in that bin, whether it's a recycling bin or whether it's a compost bin or whether it's a trash bin. It's a solution that can be implemented almost by the flip of a switch. Um, to date, we have over 9 million standardized labels on recycling bins throughout the U.S. And it is absolutely hands down, and I'm not saying this because we're biased, hands down the number one solution to fix recycling today. 
and the impact is instant. But it has to be done to scale because we have to get to the point where when the public is out and about or at their home or wherever, that they know where to recycle properly wherever they are, not just in one location where they learn the label, but where they can instinctually know what to do when they're passing another bin out in public or at the workplace or at school or at the airport or sports stadium so that the materials at scale, the recyclables at scale, are coming into the recycling system clean. And when that happens, then the cost of processing goes way down to the point where the, these valuable materials become competitive cost-wise with the virgin commodities. But the landfill industry doesn't want to see that happen. So there we have a possible solution in standardization. And I know it sounds a little bland, a little wonky, but the more I've been thinking about it, the more I think it is potentially quite a powerful fix. There are lots of people like my brother, Christopher, who needs very specific instructions on how and what to recycle. Yet again, speaking to me directly in my kitchen, hemming and hawing over what I do with what. And Mitch makes a good analogy. This system, she likens to the system of traffic signs in the U.S., saying that you can't go state to state and have the signs change. You're driving 65 miles down the freeway. You need to instinctively know what that sign means. And her point is the same with recyclables. It needs to be a national system. The arrows have to mean something very specific so that no matter where you are, you can throw your trash in the right bin without having to think about it. Give me the directions, color code it, and I'm in. While we're waiting for that legislation, some people, some places, are of course taking matters into their own hands. Let's go to Santa Barbara now for a quick story with none other than our very own Uncle John. Uncle John. I'm interested to hear what he has to say. Yeah, there's a new state-of-the-art recycling center in Santa Barbara. Uncle John has been to this facility, and as I consider him an expert in all things Santa Barbara, I now would like him to share his expertise on the new recycling center. Uncle John? I don't know that I would call myself an expert. I'm just trying to be uh, more aware, and I see how difficult it is, and that's why I went to the source or to the resource. That's classic Uncle John wordplay. Resource is the name of the brand new $140 million facility. This is the most advanced recycling center in the country. Santa Barbara is unique um, insofar as we have a very limited area where we can toss our trash. And it was becoming obvious that they were going to run out of room and there was no real alternative. So they devised this system to be able to basically recycle a little over 70% of everything that's thrown away in the county. Plastics and compostables and food waste and cardboard and glass and aluminum and newspapers, even clothing. So let's just cut to the chase. The brilliance of this system is that you no longer have to separate your recyclables. It's actually a pretty cool system. So you no longer have to make the decision. Here in Santa Barbara, 
just throw everything in the trash. I mean, if you have something that you know is clean, that's recyclable, yes, it's better to throw it in the, in the blue bin because that's a more direct route. But if you're not sure, the trash is the way to go because the trash eventually makes its way out to this recovery center where they, they can process it, whether it's clean or dirty. The trash goes through a machine that blows air at high velocity that separates the light material and some of the light plastics. Then it goes through drums that have magnets. So it takes all the metals out, stuff like that. So it's sorted automatically. What a great system. We can only hope that more of these systems come online in other parts of the country. Finally, I'll ask you, I didn't know you were so passionate about recycling. I know you own a few properties there and you've told me that you're actually very serious about recycling with your tenants to make sure that they recycle correctly. It's written into the lease. And yet I find that when I look, uh, when I'm at these properties and I look in the trash, I'm shocked. (laughs) And these are bright people, lovely people of different age groups. uh, And I'm shocked to see what still makes it in to the trash. Now I'm not as concerned because now I see what we're doing and I feel like, okay, now I'm a little more relieved. It's great to know we can do something, but many of us still feel like our ability to impact is negligible. Yet again, we run into something we've heard time and time again on this podcast, which is we are but mere mortals in a sea of troubles, of complacency, Yeah, right? And then I found someone on TikTok who completely blew up that image for me. This woman is doing incredible things, solving multiple problems at once in a relatively uncomplicated manner. All right, let's go to our last interview of the episode to see how an individual really does have the power to change the system. My name is Francisca Troutman, and I co-founded Glass Half Full. We recycle glass into sand in New Orleans and the surrounding area. And we use that sand for disaster relief as well as coastal restoration. Yeah, it's such a cool organization. We are going to get way into that. My first question, the focus of this episode is just the recycling system in America. It just seems hopelessly broken. What do you think? I think in a lot of ways it is, um, and we're starting to slowly figure out how to combat the issues that we're facing. I think one of the main issues, especially with glass, has been the single stream system that we use, which is just like throwing all your recyclables into one bin. Um, So especially with the glass, that causes a lot of issues because it can get broken, it becomes very small, and then it becomes just basically contamination. Yeah, well, I think it's, In every city, the rules are different. And so it's maddening. I I saw on your website, I don't think it's the case here in Los Angeles, but I saw that in New Orleans, if you put a glass bottle in your recycling bin, the whole thing gets thrown out. Uh, Yeah. Why? (laughs) Um, Because of basically the reasons I just said, glass really can act as a contaminant in a lot of facilities. And so if they're not equipped to handle that glass and separate it, They're just like, I'm not even dealing with this. Send that to the landfill because we won't be able to use anything um, that's mixing with that broken glass. Okay, so tell me about your idea for Glass Half Full and how you got that going. 
Um, I've lived in Louisiana my whole life and we're, we've been pretty bad at recycling. Um, so growing up, I didn't have, you know, curbside recycling. We've never had glass recycling really throughout the state. Once I got to college and met my co-founder, Max, who's from New York City, where they do have recycling systems, um, he was like, you know, it, it seems strange that y'all don't recycle glass considering how much, you know, we drink down here. And so one night over a bottle of wine that we knew would end up in the landfill, we decided to just kind of do something to combat this glass recycling issue and um, start small however we could to to turn glass into something that could be usable. I mean, it's a great idea, but how do you do that? You're in your 20s, and how do you start an organization like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step was um, where do we get the money? <laughs> And so we decided to start a GoFundMe crowdfunding campaign that allowed us to get like a, a small machine that could pulverize the glass. We started in a backyard collecting some things. We were able to purchase a trailer and like different things like that, that we needed to just get going. And then once we got going, we just grew, you know, step by step until we got to where we are today, which is in a 40,000 square foot facility, which with a huge recycling um, system, and we're able to process about 25,000 pounds like a day at this point. Okay, so tell me about the specifics of how the glass gets to you, what, how you process it, and then what happens to it. Yeah, so we get glass in two different ways. One is through our free drop-off programs where anyone can come and bring us glass, and then also through our pickup programs which are paid programs where we will go and pick up glass from your house, your business, your restaurant for a fee. And then once we have that glass collected, we will send it through our pulverizing system. So we'll just crush it up. It turns into a mixture of sand and gravel, and then we sift it into different sizes. So anything from a very fine powder like sand up to a large gravel size and then based on, you know, what size the material is, we'll know what it should be used for. So like the powder is really good for sandblasting, the coarse sand we're using for coastal restoration, the gravel is being used for like landscaping and water management. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, then digging into this idea of sand, um, I saw that sand is the second most exploited resource after water, sand. Yeah. So we need to preserve it or what? Yeah, I think the bottom line is just that we're using it at a faster rate than it can be naturally created. You know, it's used for everything like you don't even think about concrete, phones, paint, toothpaste, like all of these things that require sand. Hmm. And we're just using it at a much faster rate than it can be naturally created, which is creating this global sand shortage. And we're also seeing it in Louisiana. We can't dredge enough sand to combat our coastal land loss crisis. And so there are going to have to be other solutions and other materials in order to be able to keep up. Tell me how it feels for everybody involved in this, people that drop off glass. or Tell me things that you've noticed about what it's like to go to these events where you're refilling the coastlines. It's, it's very, very empowering. I think with the you know, climate issues that we're facing, you can feel like as an individual, you have no power and you have no ability to change anything or make a big difference. And we're able to sort of give people that power back. You know, you can bring us your glass 
Um, you can encourage your neighbors to recycle your glass. You can come volunteer and literally put sand back on the coast and know that you are helping to combat this issue that seems larger than life. Everything we've done so far has been because of individual action. You know, we don't get government funding. We aren't funded by the city. We don't work with the city, really. Um, it's all because of individuals. And, and that's a really empowering feeling. Do you have any, like, anecdotes? Are there are there people that have been just not at all involved in climate that you've been able to pull in through this program? Absolutely. I think recycling is something that does truly unite like the different sides of the political spectrum, because a lot of people view, you know, trash as a resource. And, and um, like even my grandmother is so used to like giving glass back to be refilled. And so it felt strange for her to have to suddenly start throwing away glass. Um, and so she always like saves her glass, washes out her plastic um, even though she may be a bit more on the right side of the political spectrum. So it does absolutely bring together people. Um, I see it a lot on my TikTok where um, a lot of people will support, you know, my videos about recycling. And then suddenly I talk about climate change and they're like, wait, what? How is this? Uh, <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for, um, which has been awesome because I get to sort of draw them in through recycling. Like we shouldn't be wasting these resources. The coast is so important. And this is how it's connected to climate change and what we need to do there as well. Of course, you do have a really compelling story right there in New Orleans with the coastal erosion. Tell me about those events. Our coastal restoration events? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we love getting people involved. A lot of people often comment like, couldn't you just like dump a truckload of sand? And we're like, yeah, but it's more fun to have volunteers involved to get them to bag the sand and transport it and move it. Um, and every project looks different. So we just did a project with U.S. Wildlife and Fisheries on Lake Pontchartrain where we had like 30 volunteers per day. We had sand in burlap bags. And then we had to take airboats through the marsh, like through this maze of a Louisiana marsh to get to this specific spot that we had um, focused on for the restoration project. And then we were just like, knee deep in like muddy, sandy, like marsh um, area. We got to see alligators and, and all of that good stuff. Wow. Yeah. So it's fun too. Exactly. Tell me a little more about your social engagement. I know I am not yet on TikTok. The, the podcast will be. So what's been your experience between your company and TikTok and how that is helping, especially young people get involved? Yeah, the community we've built on that platform is just like no other. And I truly don't think we would be where we are today without TikTok. We started Glass Half Full in like February of 2020, and we got on TikTok in June of 2020. And it just completely changed the trajectory of our organization. You know, so many people were able to um, learn about our work and then in turn support our work. We got some of our first you know, large funders through TikTok. We've gotten so many different opportunities, like working with Corona Beer, working with a luxury watch brand that we just worked with. And then on top of that, we also have this unique position where we can educate people on the issues that we find important, such as recycling and glass recycling and coastal restoration. And so it's, it's just been incredible to see 
Yeah, and I'm sure it's awesome to just see the business grow. I mean, I looked at these images of this giant warehouse you have now, and it's like a huge operation. That just must be exciting to watch the progress of an organization like that. Yeah, it's so satisfying, and our work is so easily like measurable. We have literally a mountain of glass that we can point to and say, like, this this is the work we're doing. Like it's this big. Um, and we can, you know, say we've diverted over 2.5 million pounds of glass from landfills and it's just, it feels good. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well then we'll wrap up soon, but I'll just ask you, uh, how has this changed your feelings? Were you, you know, how involved before you started this, were you, how worried were you about climate and recycling and how has this changed your personal feelings? It's changed my entire outlook for sure. I think sadly I was one of those people who knew about the the threat of climate change and how important it was, but I felt again like as an individual what can I really do? You know, I'm I'm bringing my own cup to the coffee shop and using metal straws, but is that really making a difference? Is my recycling actually being recycled? But now that I'm truly in the work and convincing other people to join the work, it's such a different outlook. It's so much more positive. It really is, you know, going out and volunteering and getting your hands dirty and, and doing something physical really does kind of ignite that fire in you again. And so every single day I wake up and I'm just like fired up and knowing that I'm able to make a difference instead of doom scrolling and, and being sad about the state that we're in. So Chris, we started the episode, I outed you for your poor recycling skills. Has this episode helped at all? Has it given you any tips? It has. Look, I believe there is value in knowledge and information. You started off asking about conspiracy theories and conspiracies. And the only way to know if something's worthwhile is to go to a reputable source. And that's what we're trying to be. So now in my head, I know that number one, every time I don't recycle, every time I don't focus on reusing or consumerism, I'm playing into the hands of somebody with a profit motive. And that I think is a good rule hmm. to follow in many things in life. So having the bad guy makes me want to be the good guy. The second thing is seeing people doing big things, seeing the impact that this can have rekindles that fifth grader that we talked about earlier, reading the book that we both know of, knowing that our planet is this amazing place and that I should, if I'm going to take these resources, I should be willing to take a few minutes to figure out how do we put them back into a system that is somewhat sustainable. So yeah, very much impacted by this episode. A special thanks to all of our guests, Mitch Hedlund of Recycle Across America and Francisca Troutman of Glass Half Full New Orleans. Get involved at RecycleAcrossAmerica.org and GlassHalfFullNola.org. Thanks also to Uncle John Langsfelder, the unofficial mayor of Santa Barbara. He sure is repping up there. Listen, please make sure to follow or subscribe to this show from your podcast player and send us your feedback at Week on Earth at gmail.com. We're trying to build a community 
We want to partner with organizations making a difference. We want to partner with you. So stay in touch. If you're writing recycling legislation or building a trash sorting super center, send us a note. We will collaborate. That's the power of all of us. Our show is produced by Elise Louie with music by Amy Eileen Wood. Carbon tracking provided by CO2.Earth. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week right here on Earth.